Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. June is a busy month as Pride Month kicks into full swing and National Indigenous History Month begins. I'll be interviewing many over the next few weeks to speak to both of these events, but first we have some catching up to do on a little bit of maize news. After the tragic events in Uvalde, my first interview today takes a closer look at gun control in Canada and the link between gun violence and violence against women. Andrea Gunraj from the Canadian Women's Foundation joins me to share why Prime Minister Trudeau's recent suggested changes to our gun laws are a good thing, but additionally, how we can still do better. Anne Brody joins me this week with rave reviews for Ikeara, a coming-of-age story where a young girl must come to terms with her father's life as a gangster and drug trafficker, available in theaters now. Irma Vep, which is a film within a film, also in theaters, under the banner of Heaven, a dark tale about Mormon Latter-day Saints fundamentalism on Disney Plus of all places. And I Love Lucy finally has a permanent home with Paramount. Bookworms rejoice. The Word on the Street Festival is back in Queen's Park on June 11th and 12th, and you definitely won't want to miss the incredible lineup of speakers and authors at this year's event. Rebecca Diem, resident comms wizard since 2019 for The Word on the Street, joins me to share what you can expect at this year's free-to-attend festival. Nancy Wilson from the Canadian Women's Chamber of Commerce is here to discuss the myth of women empowerment and how it is a distraction tactic that encourages women to focus on themselves individually and to ignore systemic inequalities. Nancy is a powerhouse committed to making systemic changes that will truly help women running their own business. Finally, If you need some inspiration, you won't want to miss my final interview with Kathleen Black, who is the subject of a new documentary called The Relentless One. Kathleen is here to help women shift their lives from chaos to calm. A truly inspiring individual, you'll want to stick around to the end for this one. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. The tragic and absolutely not shocking school shooting in Uvalde, and I feel I really need to emphasize it's not shocking given the United States' appalling lack of action on guns after Sandy Hook, is raising questions in Canada about our gun control laws. While the level of violence in our country, country thankfully, is nowhere near America's, we're not immune. And gun violence has risen 35%, and Canada has one of the world's highest per capita gun ownership rates, with an estimated 34.7 firearms per 100 people. And those are the ones we know about. Andrea Gunraj, Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation is joining me today to discuss why it's so important that we take a closer look at our own gun control laws. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thank you for having me, Candice. So, I mean, obviously, 
uh, the news this week, Trudeau is taking steps, which is uh, hopefully will pass. Uh, but let's talk about what's happening uh, in our own country here as far as guns are concerned. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes people are a bit surprised to hear about the context in Canada because we're so focused on the U.S. context, which, as you mentioned, has some very particular issues and absolute huge concerns. But I mean, I think we have to look at this idea of gun control as an important part of what we're doing and need to do to address gender-based violence in Canada. Things like domestic violence and stalking and sexual assault. These are the kinds of violence, of course, that women and girls and two-spirit trans and non-binary people are at highest risk of. And what we find is that guns become a really terrible element and layer when you look at domestic violence. Um, when there's firearms in the home, the rate of domestic violence is huge. It increases. Actually, firearms in the home is the greatest risk factor, the single greatest risk factor for lethal domestic violence situations. So domestic violence happens all the time, but when you have a gun in the home, it's more likely to be lethal for everybody involved, most importantly for the victim or the survivor of this violence. And if they die, the non-survivor, and that's a femicide instance, but also for other people in the homeless world too, the children, the young people who might be in the home, even the perpetrator themselves. Um, I think, you know, we look at some of the stats and they are stunning. We know a person or a woman is killed by her intimate partner every six days on average in Canada. And we see in 2018, firearms were present in over 600 intimate partner violence incidents in Canada. And those who are victimized in inti intimate partner violence instances are five times more likely to be killed when a firearm is in the home. So it's not insignificant. And many times when we're talking about issues of gun control, we're thinking about stuff that might happen in public, mass shooting incidences. Are we thinking about gender-based violence is the question, and we have to because it is a significant respect in those circumstances. I'm curious, do you have numbers around how many of those guns are legally obtained or illegally obtained? Is there stats around that? Great question. I mean, this is something I've been asked a lot because I think we make such a distinction between an illegal and a legal handgun. We think the illegal handgun is the problem and the legal gun is not a problem. Not the case. We see that actually it's not just about illegal handguns as sometimes it's presumed. It's really about all guns. So these guns, they could be legal, they could be illegal. It's still going to increase the risk of gender-based violence becoming lethal in a home. And interestingly, long guns are the guns most likely to be used in domestic violence situations. And in fact, this is a really interesting quote. Shotguns and rifles in rural homes have been referred to as weapons of choice in domestic violence situations. So this is a Canada-wide issue. It's a rural, suburban, and urban matter. It's a, a legal and illegal handgun or legal and illegal long gun situation. I think it's just we have to look at the statistics and see that the presence of a gun, whatever it got, however it got there, whatever status it has, that's what creates the risk that we have to control and reduce and hopefully get to a place where these deaths don't happen anymore. So what would you say to people then who are, who would say, you know, you leave my guns alone, I use them for hunting, uh, you know, I, I've done my background check, I'm legally allowed to have this. What's the argument you could make with them to, so that to understand the importance of having um, tighter gun control? Well, you know, I think if you have a gun and you've gone through all the processes 
and you have made sure that, you know, everything is checked, great. But there are people who are using these guns in dangerous situations. There's folks who have gone through the screening and still use a gun in a domestic violence situation. We have to think about it in terms of just collectively, how are we going to reduce this risk factor? So one thing that is interesting about this new legislation being proposed is looking for greater screening for gun licenses. And they're looking at risk factors and trying to reduce those risk factors. They're actually connecting domestic violence, suicide, and hate crime risk as one of the red flags to address when we're looking at giving somebody a gun license, when we're looking at actually taking away somebody's gun license. Now, I believe this is so important because think about it. What we've seen is that when somebody has domestic violence histories, when somebody has a history of hate crimes in general, that that actually increases their risk of not only domestic violence death by gun, but also mass shootings. Also the kinds of things that were happening in public. So I'm glad that we're looking at the risk factors of domestic violence as something that we have to take seriously when we're looking at who should have a gun and why they should have it and whether or not that gun should be taken away. And I think particularly about what happened in Nova Scotia. This was a really important thing for us to look at because in this particular circumstance, as in other circumstances, there were red flags for domestic violence long before the mass shooting happened. In the States, this is a huge factor we see in mass shootings over and over again. In Canada, we see it over and over again. So I do feel like, you know, the question of, well, me and my gun is not the key question we have to look at. The key question we have to look at is, do we want to reduce domestic violence? Do we want to reduce femicide? Do we want to then take some smart risk factor moves to reduce the risk of this? And, and I feel like this law tries to do it. Now, I'm not going to overpraise and say that this is the only thing we have to do. This is one small slice of many things we have to do to address domestic violence, gender-based violence, intimate partner violence. One small slice. So please, let's not look at it like magic. It's just a smart move to do amongst many other smart moves we have to start doing. Okay. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Andrea Gunraj from the Canadian Women's Foundation. And we're talking about guns in Canada. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Everyday gun season, breathing was uneven, people down on knees and everything was a blur. Can't tell you where he was, but I remember where we were. Look, lately we can't even have our pastimes. We leave our homes and one day if he'll be our last. Welcome back. Uh, we're speaking with Andrea Gunraj uh, from the Canadian Women's Foundation about guns. Andrea, um, one of the things I noted about the shooting in Uvalde was that the shooter actually shot his grandmother first. And a statistic I read was that often these mass shootings start with uh, that sort of um, shooting a woman. And I hate to just say it's a woman, but it's usually a woman. Yeah, I think you have a point, Candace. Um, it's usually a red flag is domestic violence. And the domestic violence can be something like so noticeable, like a shooting, sure. But what is the history even before it gets to that point where it's lethal violence? Many times that's where the red flags will be early, early on. You see somebody treating their partner or their woman family member in awful ways. You see them um, saying terrible things, controlling behavior, manipulative behavior, all those, those kinds of escalating violences we have to think about when we're looking at 
okay, it gets to a place now where you're shooting somebody. It gets to a place now where you're doing perhaps even a mass shooting in a public space. These are all on the scale of violence. And I really appreciate any opportunity to look at what the evidence tells us, any histories that we have to look at and think, where are the smart points of intervention? Where are the smart points of prevention? One thing that I have, um, you know, mentioned to people more than once, this idea that, oh, there was nothing that we could have done. Oh my goodness, this came out of nowhere. Well, you said it. It never comes out of nowhere. There's always something that shows us this could have been prevented. We could have made a move in the right direction. We didn't because maybe the public will wasn't there. Maybe we didn't even know about it. We didn't have the data and the evidence. We didn't have the the mind to listen to the experts who have been talking about it. We didn't have the mind to listen to the survivors of violence, to the people doing gender-based violence prevention and intervention in their own community. So I just want to encourage us to take the highest standard and say, no, actually, these are very preventable, but we have to do the right steps in terms of listening to the right people, listening to the survivors of violence, looking at the data, putting it all together and say, what smart moves are we going to make to prevent and intervene so that the rate of gender-based violence and all violence goes down to zero. That should be our goal. And I think it would give us a lot of different policy outcomes of what we've been doing since since when we've been starting this conversation about reducing violence and increasing safety. I have I have one last question for you. So we, we've talked about legal guns in Canada. They are obviously an issue. They're in the home. They're an issue. Uh, but if I wanted to go out and obtain a gun today, say illegally, how hard or difficult is that? Oh, that's a great question. I am no expert on how one gets an illegal handgun and an illegal assault rifle. So that question of you know, what do you do to address the illegal handguns that come into the country and kind of go through a a bit of uh, under channels, black market channels? That's a great question. I think that people have been saying, you know, these types of laws don't touch those types of weapons. I totally understand that. And I totally understand that a completely different set of interventions have to happen. So, I mean, part of this initiative this particular bill being put on the table here is a national freeze on the sale and the buying and the importation and transfer of handguns. I mean, I think that's part of the solution and there's going to be a lot of solutions I'm not very familiar with that are going to talk about what do we do to kind of stop the pipeline of these guns. But I also think about, yeah, the gun is an important part of the matrix of things we have to do. But what's prevention look like when we're getting smart about what we want to do to prevent? And I think about things that might impact somebody actually picking up a gun. So I think about the things that we might have to do in our communities to prevent violence as a mechanism to get what you want. I think about prevention for young people. I think about healthy relationships, education, in school. We're still not doing that the way that we should. It's not standard across the country. It is not standard school board to school board, school to school. And by any means, you know, doing it in school is one place. But did you listen to your teachers when you were younger? Probably not. You had a lot of peer stuff going on. You had your community. You had your friends. Um, So I think about it so broadly. I mean, I think that the vision is really preventing violence at large, preventing gender-based violence as a form of violence, and then increasing safety. The things that we have to do are going to go far beyond letter of law, far beyond particular things around guns. It's going to be actually prevention and intervention on a community level, on a regional level, on a national level. And that is a huge investment, but I think it's all worth 
investment. And that's what the Canadian Women's Foundation has been saying for a long time. What's the worthy investment we're going to do to make sure lives are safe? What's the worthy investment that we make sure that every woman, girl, trans, spirit, non-binary person has the ability to thrive? And certainly being unsafe in their community is not thriving by any means. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Andrea, it's always great to talk to you. I love having you on. I wish we had more time today. Uh, I want people to be able to connect with you and follow along. You guys are always sharing great information, lots of data, statistics, things people can use and arm themselves with. So where can they go? Well, I would say go to CanadianWomen.org. That's our website. And, you know, we have a lot of information there about just the facts and the figures, the kind of basic things you have to know. We also have a podcast, All Right, Now What?, and this is, um, I think, a great place to get a little deeper. You know, we have a lot of sound bites in the world, and sometimes you don't quite get the opportunity to delve into it. Like, what is this issue about? We try to do that at all right now. But, and of course, you can find us on social media. Just search Canadian Women's Foundation. Follow us. We're always posting stuff, and we'd love to hear from you. The final thing I think that's really important for me to mention as we're talking about gender-based violence, we have a campaign based on the signal for help, that one-handed sign that you can do to say, I need you to check in with me safely. Part of this campaign is trying to give people the tools to be able to respond to gender-based violence in their own lives. So go to signalresponder.ca. You can download a toolkit about how you can support a survivor in your life and also sign up to learn more because it's a whole learning journey we want to take people on. More than 25,000 people have already signed up. So join us. It's, it's a good journey to go on. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thank you for having me. I don't want to be in early grave when I'm walking through the halls. I don't want to be brave. I just want to be safe. Take a chance on me. We can go dancing. We can go walking. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody. Anne, what do you got for us this week? Some really interesting stuff, a terrific film, and some very fine, if you ask me, streaming opportunities. So let's get into it. Uh, in the theaters, we have Acciara, which is an Italian film with subtitles. Just incredible. It stars a real-life family as a family, and it's uh, one of the daughters, one of the three daughters, 18th birthdays, um, and her her sister, who's 15 years old, uh, discovers something about her father that shocks her to the core. He leaves this huge birthday party given by the family and villagers. He leaves there. He, he refuses to make a speech to honor his daughter, um, runs to his car, car blows up. So the 15-year-old discovers that he's part of the mob. Uh, it turns her life inside out. She finds um, a tunnel and a bunker underneath the house. Her life is completely turned upside down. She's traumatized. But the thing of it is, it shifts time and shifts realities in such an interesting way. And the ending is one of the most surprising I've ever seen offers multiple outcomes. Wow, I just can't recommend this highly enough. It's at the Carlton in Toronto and Van City in Vancouver. So be sure to catch Achiara. All right. Uh, tell me about Irma Vep. That looked very interesting to me. Yeah, well, it's a remake of a 1996 film, the same title, same writer-director, 
um, that starred Maggie Chung. This time it's Alicia Vikander. She plays an American superstar, movie star. She's just come off a huge action film. And she's in France to do a remake of a 1915 silent film called Les Vampires. And it's about a, a criminal society of vampires that wreck havoc on society. Well, that's part of it. And we see bits of the actual film. It was a French film um, coming throughout. And it, it, it just adds a kind of uh, creepiness and, and a contrast to what she's going through. Her big problem is she's just broken up a, a relationship. Um, the director on this series, she's on this uh, remake she's doing is uninsurable, so it may have to shut down. And all these uh, ex-female lovers of hers show up and give her hell. I mean, it's just astonishing. It's so unusual. So she's absolutely reeling from all of this. And then she wonders, well, you know, maybe I'll... I won't do this film and I'll do uh, Silver Surfer and they'll give me a blank check. But of course, there's much more ahead. Murder, Madness, Treachery, Art and Commerce. It is really fun. It's kitschy and you can't beat Alicia Vikander. Okay. I really want to talk about Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh, this one seems dark and timely somehow. No kidding. It's about something I never knew fundamentalists in the Mormon church in the States, Latter-day, the Church of the Latter-day uh, Saints. And Andrew Garfield, who's English, plays a local Mormon who also happens to be the police detective. And a local Mormon woman who had dreams of being a newscaster and a singer, which is outside the realm, despite Marie Osmond, um, is found murdered along with her baby daughter, so Garfield's detective looks into her husband immediately. He says he didn't do it. He investigates the, the huge family that he comes from um, and discovers that they have roots to the fundamentalist root, uh, beginnings of, of Mormonism. And it's really dark stuff. I mean, dark, dark, dark. So apparently some peculiar men with long beards have been showing up at, at the dead woman's house. And so that gives him his, his beginning. Uh, and he comes across uh, various splinter groups, Patriots for Freedom. Um, and it's, it it's upsets his own view of Mormonism, his religion. And he wonders if his hands are clean. Andrew Garfield is so incredibly talented and he pulls this off so beautifully. Um, also, Roy Culkin's in it. He plays one of the family members. So, yeah, it's definitely worth it. It's an FX original on Disney Plus, if you can imagine. And it's a series, <laughs> correct? It's a series, yeah. All right, something we can put our get our teeth into for a little bit. Uh, all betcha. right, let's. We got a. We've only got a few seconds left. But tell me about I Love Lucy. It has a home. Oh yay! Finally, I Love Lucy has a home after years of going around to independent stations in a kind of a spotty way. You can get all 200 episodes now on Paramount+. Plus. And I don't know about you, but I will make time to see my I Love Lucys. This, she was the most, Lucille Ball was the most powerful woman in Hollywood and probably remains that way. She was a production house owner. She and her husband, Desi Arnaz, invented the sitcom, the three camera stuff. And they made this series that pretty much everyone in the world with electricity knows and was the most 
famous woman in the world in the 50s. So I am just delighted. Did you ever see the one where they moved to Connecticut and she has her shirt full of eggs? She's planting eggs because her chickens aren't laying. And so Ricky makes her practice this uh, dance number with her <laughs> and the eggs all break inside her shirt. And it's the longest recorded laugh in television history. So you she's, have that she's, forward. she's great. And this means that there's a great way now to introduce a whole new generation to I Love Lucy easily. Uh, where it. is it? Remind me, please, of its new home. Uh, Paramount Plus. All right. Excellent. OK, Anne, you've got all this plus more. Uh, I know there's always more that comes in that you add into your column every week. So that's on what she said, talk.com. And we will see you next week. We will see you next week. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I'll just read the book The word on the street is Canada's largest open-air book festival returning to the streets of Toronto on June 11th and 12th at Queen's Park. Festival goers can browse a vibrant marketplace for books, magazines, comics, and more by Canadian and Indigenous authors and enjoy readings and panels featuring more than 100 authors on five stages over two full days. Joining me now to discuss is Rebecca DM, who is the host of Read the North, a podcast miniseries about Canlit, as told by Toronto's favorite book festival, The Word on the Street, where she has worked as the resident comms wizard since 2019. Welcome to What She Said, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. This is a book lover's dream, and I've never even heard of a book festival. So tell me about it. How did this come to be? Yeah, so way back in 1989, the city of Toronto was exploring ideas to celebrate International Literacy Year, and they came up with the idea of doing a big, free, public book festival. Um, so just imagine, like, the the book fair of your dreams as a child, except you're an adult, you have tote bags, and you have a, a wallet full of money to spend. <laughs> So if, you know, if I, I think about going to festivals, so if I was to go to a food festival, obviously there would be samples of food and music festival, there'd be musicians on stage. So what's the draw of a book festival? Well, it's, it's very much like that. It's very much like a music festival, but for book lovers, where the authors are the stars of the show. So we have, we have over a hundred authors appearing across five stages. We also have a kids activity zone and a kids literature stage. So there's books for the entire family. Um, and we do also have food trucks, uh, a little beer garden where you can like browse our exhibit or marketplace featuring publishers and uh, bookstores and literacy organizations. Um, and then chill out and have a hot dog, have a drink um, and just have like a really nice day. Tell me about some of the highlights this year then. Who are you excited about? Oh, I am excited for so many things. Um it's very difficult organizing the festival because it means that we are behind the scenes um, promoting everything and, you know, you know, don't get to sit down and enjoy as much. But what's great this year is that two of our stages are going to be live streamed, 
which means that you can enjoy the content year round on the Word on the Street Toronto's YouTube channel. Um, so a couple of other things that I'm really excited for are um, this this new book that's coming up by Kate Hartfield, who's who's a friend in Ottawa. Uh, it's called The Embroidered Book. It's a bestseller. Uh, and she's going to be on our Across the Universe stage. Um, another one that I think is going to be really cool is Best Young Woman Job Book by Emma Healy. Um, I'm just, uh, she's really cool and I follow her on Twitter. So I'm really excited to read that one. Uh, and then, of course, we have Still Hopeful with Maude Barlow. Um, we have When We Lost Our Heads with Heather O'Neill. Um, there's just like a bunch of really cool stuff happening. Um, and then we're also going to have a whole panel just dedicated to honoring the legacy of the late Lee Miracle. Um, you know, she passed away uh, earlier this year and we have a bunch of friends and mentees of hers for a panel that we've called Storming the Stage to to really like examine and honor the impact that she's had on Canadian and Indigenous storytelling in particular. And what about people would-be authors, for example? Could they find inspiration? Are they able to speak with the authors uh, for advice and, and, and guidance on, on perhaps starting uh, their own book? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I, that's how I started out. I, I attended my first Word on the Street in 2012, um, and I spoke to a ton of authors. I got books signed. It's, it's really a space where you, you connect, not just with other authors, but with a community. Um, publishers, editors, librarians, booksellers, they're all here. And, and becoming part of that community was really central to me eventually publishing my own books and then eventually uh, coming to work at The Word on the Street. So how long does it take then to typically go through the festival? Is it a, is it a one day uh, thing? Is it half a day or really, or would you do two days? I mean, I would do the full two days. <laughs> um, well, we expanded the festival to two days this year because it allowed us to spread things out a bit. Some, sometimes in years past, we've had like 14 stages in one day and you really have to pick and choose which, which programming to see and where to spend your time. So it's going to be a much more relaxed experience this year. Um, you can come and browse for a few hours. Uh, the festival is going to be taking place at Queen's Park again between Wellesley Street and Bloor Street. And so, you know, you could probably walk the whole thing in about half an hour. But of course, you're going to need time to browse, to check out panels, uh, to check out the food court, to sit in the park and, in, and just like enjoy being outside. Um, yeah, so I would say you can spend as little or as, uh, as much time as you'd like. But we do have it spent out have our programming uh, spread out over two days this year. And we're very excited about that. Okay. And I think it's important to note, this is free, right? Completely free. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Something we're all looking for right now with rising costs are free events. Yeah. Uh, that obviously gives a lot back to the community. So thank you so much for joining me today, Rebecca. Where can people find out more? Uh, is there somewhere they can follow along on social media? Absolutely. You can find us on social media at Toronto Watts, W-O-T-S. Uh, you can find us online at toronto.thewordonthestreet.ca. And if you'd like to listen to our five-episode miniseries podcast, you can look for Read the North, uh, and it's available on all of the podcast platforms. Okay, amazing. We'll have this in the liner notes for the show when it goes up on podcasts. So thank you so much for joining me today. The festival itself 
June 11th and 12th. I should I should mention that. (laughs) (laughs) Worth noting. Yes. Put it in your calendars. All right. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Women's Chamber of Commerce is the first and only Chamber of Commerce for women identified and non binary business owners in Canada. In fact, prior to 2017, it didn't exist here. So we have a lot of catching up to do. As a Chamber of Commerce, they represent your needs with the government, and their position and title as a chamber gives them access to the people most likely to impact change. Nancy Wilson is the founder, CEO, and chief rabble-rouser at the Canadian Women's Chamber of Commerce and joins me now to discuss the myth of female empowerment. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Thanks, Candice. So tell me, why, why do you say this is a myth? So I refer to um, female empowerment or women's empowerment as, as a myth because I see so much um, talked about around women's empowerment that really focuses on the individual and takes our perspective um, and uh, focuses it inward, um, oftentimes highlighting uh, in implicitly or explicitly on um, deficits or things that need to be improved upon um, in almost a a self-help way. And really what it means is that as we're each looking in on ourselves, trying to improve ourselves, which of course seems to be a, a good and almost righteous thing to do, it's really distracting us as a whole from um, systemic inequalities. And there's no um, amount of individual work we can do that will overcome systemic inequalities. So we can all be as empowered as we want to be. We're still going to face those systemic inequalities that exist. And so uh, I see women's empowerment the way it exists today as, as sort of a distraction technique where I would rather um, come, all of us come together uh, as a community and look towards those systemic inequalities and how we can really bring our voice to bear to, uh, to change things at the systemic level. Yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's so much in that, what you just said to unpack. You know, first off, the whole thing about, to me, uh, you know, we've been sold a bill of goods that we can have it all. I think that's not... Uh, achievable and why would we want to even try we're just you know killing ourselves trying to have it all uh and secondly i i agree we're not we're not helping each other which would lighten our load uh significantly uh, so is that what you do then through the the women's chamber of commerce um yes uh in a way i mean our our philosophy at the women's chamber of commerce is that women 
identified and non-binary um, individuals who are entrepreneurs and running their businesses uh, don't need, um, you know, don't need to do anything more necessarily to to be competent um, business owners, right? The the rhetoric around women entrepreneurs is they lack something. Um, and that is why they are less successful, smaller, um, slower growth than their male counterparts. We see women as fully competent individuals who have great business ideas and are fully um, capable of success, except that there, there exist barriers um, that are preventing that. And so we're not looking to um, train or coach um, women to become better business owners, they're great. Um, we are looking to uh, take their voices, take, take what they tell us, our challenges, to, um, to the government and say, look, this is what we need to change in order to have this large segment of the population be able to have the conditions to really succeed. Can you give me an example of some of the challenges and barriers you'd like to see shifted and that you're working on right now? Sure. So the one, um, there's sort of two that are always talked about. One, of course, is childcare, right? Um, and, and I would extend childcare to, um, to caretaking in general. So it's not only child care that falls on, on women's shoulders, it's elder care, um, caretaking in general. And, uh, and so, you know, now we have, uh, this child care, national child care plan that, uh, has been announced by the liberal, the liberal government. I'm personally holding my applause on that one to, to see how it all pans out. But, you know, obviously, um, in order to be, uh, to have the, the same amount of, uh, what I call disposable time as our male counterparts, childcare is, is essential. So we were advocating very hard for that. Happy to see something happening there. Uh, the other one that comes up every single day is access to capital. I mean, you can't run a business, you can't build a business, grow a business without sufficient access to capital. And, uh, and that is consistently a roadblock for women, whether it's um, accessing um, uh, debt through a traditional bank loan um, or, uh, you know, the biggest gap is what we see in, uh, in the venture capital space where, you know, two to four percent of, of venture capital investment in Canada goes to uh, women-owned businesses, which means on the flip side, 96 to 98 percent of all venture capital investment goes to male only owned um uh enterprises and that's such a big issue in and of itself because i mean i've had these conversations so many times with with women business owners who say when they go out to to look for funding for their business you know often they are running into people who don't understand their model don't understand their market and just so immediately dismiss them so we also need more women on the investment side 
of things who understand women-led businesses. It's such a big issue. I, I agree with you. And I think that there is some evidence to show that, um, that women, increasing women in the venture capital space will help um, sort of balance the scales a little bit. However, I would, I would argue that um, it's not up to women um, to be um, the catalyst to change, um, to, to balance that scale. You know, we oftentimes the, um, the gut reaction to solving these problems is add more women. And, and I would argue, you know, we need to push harder to say, um, fix the, fix the men, you know, because we, we don't often, um, say that, but we really should be pushing harder on that. I think, um, because why not? I mean, I'm, uh, I'm not saying that they, uh, that m- men in quotes, um, are, are malicious or or doing this um in 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 a way that yeah in in a malicious way or that they're terrible people it it comes down to gender norms and um using heuristics and unconscious bias and all of these things that are kind of outside of our control i mean women um venture capitalists often um, select men, uh, male-owned firms over over women-owned firms, because we all grow up in the same culture. We all um, receive the same messages, right? Um, it's really about um, changing those messages, changing our culture to value women, to value women's work, and not to see um, women as uh, subordinate or less than. Well, you absolutely have your work cut out for you, Nancy. Uh, these are big, uh, big projects and tasks to take on. Uh, I commend you for this. Uh, if people want to women businesses, if they'd like to join the Chamber of Commerce, if they'd like to help you uh, get, get help for themselves, where can they go? What's the best place to connect with you? So the best place is online We uh, to go to our website, which is canwccan.com wcc.ca. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nancy. Thanks, Candace. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. My next guest is a two-time best-selling author, global motivational speaker, and one of the world's leading performance strategists, famous for guiding iconic brands and professionals through her unique approach of empowered leadership and expert mindset training to add billions of increased sales volume annually to their bottom lines. Her inspiring journey of surviving a horrific childhood to becoming a tremendous business success is the subject of a new documentary called The Relentless One. 
She is set to give a TED Talk shortly, and her Ultimate Summit Series for Real Estate Professionals is coming up in November. How we were able to pin her down for an interview is beyond me, but thankfully, Toronto-based Kathleen Black is here today to discuss how we can move from chaos to calm in our own lives. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Candice. All right. So, I mean, your story, I, I watched the trailer for the documentary. Your story is not, you know, you didn't grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth. You've had to work for everything. Um, so you really are sort of an expert in moving your life from chaos into calm. It, yeah, it feels like it. I mean, I think that's why I'm able to work with other people to do that because I know it's I know it's doable. And once you go through something, you kind of become a Sherpa of helping others, I, I believe. Was there something that prompted you or pushed you to move into like to seek that calmness in your life? I realize you had a very chaotic childhood, but was there a moment where you thought I have to get this under control? I think there was a few moments, like I say that, you know, you, you may have those moments where you decide to stand strong in a storm. And I mean, there was a moment where my mom had had me um, brought in technically arrested for a uh, psychological evaluation based on truancy of all things. And I remember, you know, being at that moment and saying to the psychologist, psychiatrist technically, you know, are you holding me here? Can I leave? And he finally just was straight with me and said, you know, you can leave, but you have nowhere to go. Like you're going to be homeless and things are going to get worse, or you can stay here and you can have my help. You have my resources. And that's when I really had to face and be like, you know, you can run, but things are only going to get worse or you can be strong and face it. And I think that was one, probably the first key moment where I really felt like, okay, like I need some resources to be able to stand on my own and not have to rely on chaotic situations that are not reliable. As much as we may try, they never will be. And and I feel like in today's world, a lot of people can relate to that feeling that there's nothing reliable or certain right now. So you, you talk about turning past pain into a superpower. Uh, so do you feel you obviously this your what you've experienced is your your power now in your success? For sure. I mean, I, I think I've always been curious why some I mean, I deal with high performance and some people seem to kind of get into chaotic, chaotic situations or trauma or difficult, difficult times. And it seems to put them under like, as we say, water got in the boat and they went under, whereas other people seem to be able to harness this resilience out of it. And for me, there was something about it that probably made me a combination of angry, to be honest, and just determined to say, hey, like I'm going through this because I'm meant to do something with it. Like this is fuel that you can use to improve yourself and create a bigger toolbox, or you can just stay angry and do nothing about it. And to me, it's a call to action. These things like in retrospect, they always make sense and they have given me tools for my future. So I, I do think if we have hope that this is happening to me because I can be stronger and rebuild something better, we become more powerful. And I, I certainly think I've used those situations to my advantage for sure. Now, you think you say that optimism, to, we should be holding on to it. What's the difference between remaining optimistic and, and toxic positivity? Well, it's such an important question. It's such an important question because I, I think, you know, there... There's an ability not, I mean, as part of high performance, I also deal with toxic behavior and enabling behavior versus healthy because we need to know that. And I think toxic positive, positivity is very dangerous. It's very dangerous for our teams and culture because saying, oh, you know, I wasn't part of it, so I'm just going to be positive and stay in my lane and not look at anything around me. Well, toxic behavior, enabling behavior takes our whole community out. It can take our country out, our teams out, our businesses out. So to me, toxic positivity is not staying in an empowered place. It's saying I'm going to keep blinders on 
and you know not necessarily seeing what's around me to me being in a place of empowerment is saying i see what's going on and i'm choosing to decide how i should do something about it and when and i'm empowered by my ability to live in a way that makes those things better which is very different from in my my mind from um toxic positivity that can you know, it can create whole hubs of toxicity, really. And so is that what you teach people then in terms of when it comes to leadership, how to inspire their teams is to embrace that optimism and, and I guess, lead by example with that? Well, embrace hope. I, I think the most important thing I've heard with feedback from the documentary was somebody, and it's hard because when you're in a documentary, I will never see it from the eyes of somebody who didn't live it. And so I've really been curious of, did I do this for the right reasons? And how are people taking it? And one of the reviews was, you know, there's a lot of things that are inspirational, but yours is inspirational and aspirational. So there's a good reason to share this. And that was very important to me because all the work I've done in life, the core of it relies on hope. Right. We have to have hope that if we do something different, life will get better, that, you know, we can create better futures for ourselves. And I, I think that that's the, the core of everything. Without that hope, we just we won't do what we could do. And hanging on to it really harnesses us to build build something better for ourselves. And I think, you know, that's that's really important. You've been through a lot in your personal life. And then the last couple of years, collectively, we've all been through a lot. What advice are you giving to people to sort of move through this moment in time? Yeah, I think storms create tension and tension, if you harness it, is a really powerful thing for us personally, because that tension makes us pay attention, right? Like, okay, it's becoming more painful. Things aren't the way I like it. That is such a gift because some people just kind of go through day to day and they're, I talk about with symptoms versus sources or they, they make little changes, but they're not the source of the problem. And when you go through a time of a lot of like uncertainty or unrest or tension, it pushes you to the point where you have to look at the big picture things and it gives you this chance to make changes. So I talk about as raft builders, raft builders in the storm are the ones who are hyper focused on what they can do something about when everyone else is like, well, it's difficult and this and that the raft builders are like, yeah, but I'm building my future into creation. So I'm going to start to make these little steps. And because they're making steps that they think will make changes, they become more confident and more empowered, even in a storm. So those are those people like, how are they walking through water? Right. It's like, well, that's how. So I think, you know, I, I'm I'm a fairly optimistic person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the people around me are. And I don't want to drag people kicking and screaming. <laughs> I want to motivate them to feel the same way, but it, it has to be, you know, come from within, I guess, on them. So how do you recommend people do that? How do you make your optimism infectious or contagious? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the best leaders are leading themselves more than they're trying to lead others. And sometimes in the business world, that can sound backwards. But I think, you know, I work a lot with moving from ego to conscious to collective. And I believe you need to go all three. So as leaders, if we're harnessing, you know, collectives, our job is to help to impart the mindset that allows people to shift from ego to, to conscious. And one of those things is realizing there's choices. Because I think we come, I wasn't raised to realize, oh, you feel this way, you think this way, there's other ways to feel, there's other ways to think. I was just like, what do you mean? This person made me mad and I'm mad. You move into conscious, you're like, oh my gosh, there's multiple different ways to see the world. And I think as leaders to try to Sherpa things, people, things, life, culture, one of the big things we have to realize is if people are not walking, 
we can't Sherpa anyone, right? So again, that toxicity, if I'm an ego and I just want to complain or blame, I have to leave you there because I can't help people who don't want to do the walk. I, I can't. It's not my job as a leader. So I need to keep myself in the right space. And those who are going to be inspired will show up and want to work with me, walk with me. And those who don't, it's, you know, we might have to eventually part ways, which could seem harsh. But again, toxicity and like enablement that kills our performance cultures. So we try to think as leaders that, you know, nothing can touch us. But the reality is we're more susceptible to negativity than somebody. Somebody who's negative can influence us, but we can't influence somebody who's negative who doesn't want to hear what we have to say. So we have to be really protective of that, that mentorship and our resources. I, the relentless one, uh, you know, you, you strike me as somebody who is not about the ego. So it feels like you want there to be a lesson drawn from this documentary for people. And what do you hope that is? Well, again, I think the most important is, you know, we have these situations in life and I've noticed people don't talk about it and they think they're alone and, you know, they went through something in their child or as, as an adult, right? I went through both and they think they're on their own. And I think the big lesson is, first of all, our stories only have power over, over us if we let them, like they can empower us and we're not what happened to us. You know, I could name a whole bunch of classifications or labels that people could use on me or I could choose to be the victim of, but I choose to use them to say, that's something that happened to me, that's not who I am. And it gave me the chance to recreate myself. And I think we get closer and closer to who we are every time we recreate ourselves, but society doesn't like that. It's like, well, no, you're being fake. It's like, well, no, I'm going on a journey. And that that's part of awakening and finding out who we are, right? And I, I hope that's the story. You can define yourself and nothing that's happened to you, you know, has any power over you unless you choose to let it. I love that. All right. I, wanna, I want to uh, catch this TED Talk. I'm inspired now. So uh, when is that happening? The TED Talk, we're waiting for the final dates, but I'm applying to a couple of them. But right now we're looking at TEDx in Collingwood in October. So we're excited for that. Excellent. Okay. And you've got your summit coming up in November. But in the meantime, I want people to be able to follow you. I know I follow you on Instagram. Uh, can you just rhyme off the best places to connect with you? Yeah, for me directly, it's Kathleen Black underscore on Instagram and then just Kathleen Black on Facebook. I have a business uh, page and, and personal and we're on LinkedIn. So I think social media is probably the best place to connect and just, you know, see if we share values, which is a nice thing to do. All right. Excellent. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Candice. It was a pleasure to be here. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.